From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. Remember, if you enjoy the program, please rate the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you download your podcasts. It really helps us grow. On this episode, I speak with General Surgery Chief Resident Dr. Lane Frazier here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Frazier attended Michigan State University, where she graduated with high honors and a bachelor's degree in microbiology. She went on to medical school at the University of Michigan, where she developed her interest in general surgery and health services research. During her research time as a resident here, Dr. Frazier got a Master's of Science in Population Health, as well as Certificates in Patient Safety and Clinical and Community Outcomes Research. She spent three years conducting research on human factors in the operating room, working with doctors Caprice Greenberg and Doug Wigman here through the Wisconsin Surgical Outcomes Research Program. Last October, she was selected to receive the prestigious Jameson L. Chasen Award for Professionalism in General Surgery from the American College of Surgeons. The competitive national award is given to one chief resident who best exemplifies the professionalism, values of compassion, technical skill, and devotion to science and learning. We talked about her work evaluating teamwork and communication in the operating room, investigating how familiarity between team members influences the effectiveness of their communication. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Frazier, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you. It's always such a joy to have the chief residents on the show because they are fresh-faced and bushy-tailed and excited about their futures. But I think, especially in your case, I think the work that you're doing has such interesting implications, not just for you know what we are doing here, but clearly a trajectory for, for what you're going to be doing in the future, which is so exciting. Before we get into that, though, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your journey from day one to about to graduate. Sure. So for background, I grew up in a uh, largely non-medical family. My mom is a nurse. As disclosure, she hates working with surgeons. My dad's a pilot. I really didn't know I wanted to do medical school until three-quarters of the way through college. In medical school, I was really kind of open to everything, but really didn't anticipate going into general surgery until I got into the operating room and absolutely fell in love with it and loved the breadth and depth of general surgery specifically. During my fourth year of medical school, I went to the American College of Surgeons Clinical Congress and happened to stumble into a talk looking at teams, communication, and the culture of safety, and I thought that was a really interesting thing. I didn't know you could study that, so that became my new uh, goal for my research time uh, during residency. And when I interviewed at the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Caprice Greenberg had actually just been recruited here from Boston to uh, start the Wisconsin Surgical Outcomes Research Program, so that was a huge draw and one of the many reasons that I uh, decided to come here. I'm really interested in looking at surgeon behaviors and how we use or don't use our teams effectively. As a medical student, I had a lot of preconceived notions about the stereotypical surgeon throwing instruments and um, really not tolerating any misbehavior from anyone in the operating room. Uh, Is that sort of the story you learned from your mom? Like that was how she would describe surgeons when she came home when you were a kid? That was part of it. Um, I also had, you know, some medical school classmates who had some bad experiences. One of them, you know, didn't know some anatomy question and the surgeon literally, you know, made them step into the corner of the operating room. So, Some of it was behaviors that I had heard about or my peers, you know, saw firsthand. And so I came in with a lot of misconceptions about 
what surgeons do and how they behave. And you've taken that interest and really started to sort of deep dive into those relationships and how the operating room actually works, which I think is is such sort of terra incognita, despite the fact that we all go into these operating rooms every day, and it's the thing that defines us as surgeons, right? I think from a research standpoint, what actually happens in the operating room has kind of been a black box. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. It was actually a little embarrassing as I started to do this type of work, realizing like, you know, when you, quote, drop a card or, you know, book a case for the operating room, what actually happens after that before your patient gets into the operating room and you arrive? you know, to do your timeout and start the operation. So this was actually a hugely beneficial thing for me to learn as a clinical resident, like what the nurses and techs are doing before and after surgery, what our anesthesia colleagues are doing when we're not there to kind of give me a better sense of, you know, what the entire team has to do to get someone through an operation. Can you describe a little bit about sort of just pragmatics of how you did this? Because it was like, as you described in your talk, like a, a Herculean effort to actually figure out a system for figuring out how the system works. Yes. So a huge amount of time up front was spent trying to figure out what we could record, how we could store those data, and who we had to get permission from to do that. Uh, We actually ended up getting an IRB exemption as a quality improvement project, uh, but that took about a year. And we also needed buy-in from patients, legal, risk management, HR, and all the other people who are in the operating room along with the surgeons. There was pretty substantial concern from various groups that this would be used uh, or was discoverable information. And so ultimately, kind of the compromise that we made was anybody could contact me who had been in the operating room and even retroactively asked to have the case deleted. You were recording basically full video and audio in the operating room, not just during the case, but everything that happened before and after? Correct. So we started recording as the nurse and tech were starting to set up the room in open pans, and we recorded until the patient physically left the operating room. And that was, again, kind of part of how I learned of how much work happens before and after the actual operation. And then you would have just vast quantities of video and audio that then you'd transcribe. Yes. And analyze for a ton of seemingly sort of soft stuff, but data that gave you real quantitative information about how operating rooms work. Yes. So because we had to delete all of our files within 60 days, you know, our run through, we tried to be incredibly comprehensive about what was happening, who was in the room, who was talking to who, uh, not just like the actual factual data, but also my impressions about what was happening, whether so-and-so was frustrated, behaviors that weren't necessarily being captured with audio data. Um, to try and give people a good sense from the transcript of what was happening in that OR. And what were the things that really stood out for you from that work? What, what are the takeaways? We had done focus groups up front, and people talked about managing handoffs during an operation, but also on um, this idea that surgeon behaviors really set the tone of the operating room. And across the operations that I watched, I really saw that to be true. There's a variety of surgeons that I saw and a variety of ways in which they, when they entered the operating room relative to the case starting, how they interacted with other people on the team other than their resident helping them. And I was really struck by people that I knew well and seeing how they kind of interacted when I wasn't focused on doing the operation. So things that I really took away, I really do think that surgeon behaviors influence how our team thinks about us. And if we come in and are helpful and answer questions and are kind of open to questions and concerns that everyone else has, uh, I think it really does make for an easier day and probably helps our patients do better. 
not to sort of put words in your mouth, but I would imagine being like the child of a pilot too, right? You're inculcated with that culture that everyone says is sort of a good example of maybe where medicine, at least sort of picking and choosing, should be headed with real commitment to safety as the number one thing, reduction of complex tasks to checklists and that sort of thing. Like, But a huge amount of the culture of safety is also that interpersonal interaction and just people feeling safe to speak up and point out something that they, as another professional in the room who kind of knows what things should look like, see as being wrong. I would totally agree with that. The culture of safety really involves what we call leveling the hierarchy and making it so anyone can speak up. And there are a number of ways that we as surgeons either encourage or discourage that type of behavior implicitly and explicitly. Mm -hmm. My dad is a pilot, and he and I have some very interesting conversations about the parallels between surgery and aviation. Honestly, he is like surprised and sometimes horrified by some of the things that uh, happen uh, or the way that we set up our systems as is uh, one of my other research mentors, Doug Wigman, who's a human factors engineer. When he started evaluating operating room teams, he could not believe that we had our pagers and took outside phone calls during an operation because it's so different than pilots flying a plane. The counter-argument to that that I've always heard is, well, planes are like mechanical devices that are very predictable in their behaviors, and humans, every human's different, and you know, surgery is just a bit more unpredictable and chaotic and that's inherent and what are your thoughts yeah i would say that the things that you just said are are reasons why we can't just take tools and behaviors from aviation and transplant them directly into surgery because patients are not airplanes and surgeons are not pilots there's never a case where your co-pilot leaves in the middle of an operation or in the middle of a plane flight to go fly a different plane while you're in the air and similarly if if planes were like patients, we wouldn't know when they last had maintenance. There might be some wires crossed that we've never seen on imaging before. And so there just there are some parallels, but it's definitely not 100% transfer. Yeah, imperfect analogy. What from your research is going to you know, influence how you run a perfect operating room and, and or like what is to you a perfect operating room? So I think... At least culturally. Yes. Yeah. So I think things that I took away from this are um, systems factors really cannot be underestimated. You can be working with a circulator that you know very well and your favorite anesthesiologist, but if, you know, the blood bank doesn't know that you need blood and you need blood, it's going to make for a bad day. So I think one of the really illustrative things from this was how important systems issues are in terms of how we go about our day-to-day life. So I think working at an institution which kind of focuses on that and has ongoing quality improvement will be critical. In terms of personal behavior, I think that really getting to know the people that you're working with and being approachable, I think it makes you a better surgeon. I also think it makes my day more fun when I know who I'm working with. I enjoy coming to work and talking with people and being approachable, I think. That leveling the hierarchy and making sure that everybody feels comfortable speaking up is just critical. Do you think that that's as simple as sort of saying at the beginning of the case, hey, I just want to formally say, like, anybody who has any questions or concerns should be able to speak up at any time? Or do you need to do more to sort of create that culture? I think that's part of it, but I don't think that in itself is enough. If you verbally say, like, anyone can speak up, and then you knock down the first person who asks you a question or doesn't agree with your assessment of what's happening, people are very quickly going to learn that you don't actually mean what you're saying. And so I think you have to follow through with behaviors that support the fact that you value the work of everybody who's who's with you. It just reminds me of surgeons who, you know, attending surgeons who used to say to me as a resident, you know, call me if you need me, 
but don't but, call me. But don't call me, yeah. you know, right? Or need me if you call me. But like, right, there was never that spirit of feeling free to call. And so what I've always tried to do with the residents, you know, even when I was like a chief resident talking to the junior residents, I was like, never worry alone, always worry. The last thing I want is like someone feeling like they can't talk to me. But at the same time, like, I, I do, I, I think about my own behaviors in the operating room, and, like, there definitely have been times when people have said, oh, I don't, like, is, is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, of course it's okay. If it wasn't okay, like, I would have noticed that, right? And to be dismissive of that, like, okay, sometimes that may be true, but you have to be open to hearing those things and then responding to them in a way that makes the people feel like, okay, well, this time I was, wasn't right and he did know what was going on, but next time it might not be the case and, like, I should feel free to continue to speaking up. And, like, creating that culture in surgery where there's, what, we're working with 100 years of surgeon as autocratic dictator, you know, definer of reality. It's a big, big job, but... Yeah, I think it's a huge shift. I think it's going to take quite some time. Yeah. But I totally agree with you. Uh, my junior residents, you know, they'll call me you know, when I'm their backup at night and start by apologizing for calling me. And I always say, please don't apologize. It's your job to call me and it's my job to answer the phone. And so I think it starts, you know, when you're a junior resident learning that it's okay to call, it's okay to ask for help. I think it's probably part of the hidden curriculum within surgery and medicine, how to behave. And I do think sometimes someone's going to bring a, a concern up that turns out to be unfounded and everything is okay. Sometimes you are dismissive and then you realize, oh, maybe they were right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's critical to be able to go back to that person and apologize or clarify and show that you really do value their input, even when it turns out that things are okay. I think having data is going to be the thing that, that helps us move the needle to some degree, right? If we, if we can show that having really good timeouts at the beginning of a case improves outcomes, if we can show that creating this, you know, anyone can stop the line culture improves outcomes, then you can sort of mandate it, right? Yeah. To I some degree. I, I would agree. I think we're still learning how to measure and define culture and safety. There are lots of small things that you can measure or kind of easier data points that we can pick at, but I think as we figure out what's important, we have to measure the things that are really important and not just the things that we've learned how to measure. That gets us into the future for you. Is it, tell us a little bit about like where you're headed from here and also sort of next steps in this really, I think, just absolutely critical research sphere. So I have about two months left uh, as a general surgery resident, and then I will be going to the University of Pennsylvania for a one-year trauma critical care fellowship, which I am absolutely thrilled about. After that, I will be uh, job hunting. Uh, I'm very interested in staying in academics and having a combination of critical care, trauma, emergency, general surgery, and research time. I think the type of work that I did during my general surgery research um, was really valuable, and I'd love to continue it. I think kind of initial first steps will be trying to find a way to quantify or measure familiarity among people so that as we continue to look at how we create and build teams that we can uh, kind of standardize how we're measuring familiarity. I'm also really interested in learning more about non-technical skills and if we can demonstrate a relationship between surgeon behaviors or team behaviors and patient outcomes, as well as things that are valuable at the hospital level like team turnover, costs, and staff retention. This goes beyond patient care and into sort of workplace dynamics where you know people who are being screamed at and having 
things thrown at them by autocrats in operating rooms like are going to look for other jobs. As right? they should. As they should, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think uh, something that's been interesting is people ask me what I did during my lab time and I start talking about this, everybody can get behind the idea of like looking at teams and communication because they've all had experiences, good and bad, that they can kind of refer back to. So I think, you know, I'm looking at teams in the operating room, but it's something that kind of applies to all of our clinical spheres and ultimately can improve um, not only care for our patients, but how we experience our job. Fantastic. I honestly could not think of more important work to be done right now to actually impact the way we take care of patients right now than exactly that sort of thing. It's just so cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the surgery set. It's, I'm sorry that this will be our probably last opportunity to speak with you as a resident, but when you come back to deliver your grand rounds as an exalted visiting professor, we will talk again. Many years from now. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with Dr. Jeff Gertner. Dr. Gertner is the Johnson & Johnson Professor of Surgery and Professor of Materials Science and Engineering at Stanford University. He's a plastic surgeon with a long track record of successful entrepreneurship. We talk about how surgeons can bring their innovations to market. Tune in, and thanks for listening. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.